Well, hello everyone. I'm Calypso Nicolaitis, director of uh, CIS, and I would like to welcome everyone uh, to this talk today, uh, which we're really very happy to organize as DPIR and CIS. Uh, we want to very much welcome uh, Martin Davidson, who, um, okay. who, uh, as you all know, is the CEO of uh, the British Council. And, um, and who has a very distinguished past indeed in basically inventing the concept of smart power for Britain, or inventing the practice rather, uh, through his work for I guess 30 years uh, in the British Council throughout the world, but above all uh, in China where he established the British Council's office uh, in, in 84, or it was in 84, and uh, and uh, then went into different parts of China um, and, uh, and continued um, spreading really the, the enlarging British Council in China up to 200 and something staff. So it's, it's an amazing accomplishment, really grazing the trail, I think, for what has become the most important, one of the most important uh, part of British foreign diplomacy. And, and today, what what we've wanted to, to have is really a conversation about the role of cultural exchange in uh, foreign policy under this notion of smart power, and we'll discuss a bit more uh, 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 terms and terminology we were just discussing now. So today, uh, uh, Sir, Sir Martin Davidson is going to discuss this topic, Winning Friends Abroad, Can Britain's Cultural Power Maintain Our Influence in the Modern World? about 30 minutes, and then we'll open for questions. Thank you very much indeed. Um, and thank you for the invitation to uh, talk to you today. Um, uh, as, uh, as you say, um, I'll talk for, I guess, about 30 minutes, and then I'm really interested in having a wider, wider conversation. Um, but I thought I'd kick off by uh, just some thoughts. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, I was on the phone to uh, my colleague in Juba, uh, faced with a very, very uncomfortable and difficult local situation when we agreed that in the end he had to leave Juba and our 15-odd people were evacuated by uh, RAF plane from Juba over a wrong and rather uncomfortable weekend. And uh, many people asked the question, well, what on earth was this organisation doing having 15 people in what essentially remains an extremely fragile and delicate uh, uh, environment, if not war zone, and which fool uh, thought about sending them there in the first place? Well, actually, the fool who thought about sending them in the first place was actually me. Um, and we, I thought about sending them there for a very, very good reason. The foolishness really arose from a conversation I had in Juba with senior figures from the uh, then uh, Liberation Army just before the. Uh, uh, plebiscite um, on uh, uh, South Sudanese uh, independence. And the points that were being made by people at that stage were, for a new state, what was going to be absolutely critical for them was going to be international recognition, international place. And that international place had to have a certain set of requirements to it. One of them was membership of international organisations, so membership of the East Africa uh, Union, membership of uh, the Commonwealth, um, but also the sense of building nation. One of the most interesting conversations I had was about the power of English as a nation builder for South Sudan. How does 
access to English. It provides international communication, it provides international opportunity, it provides skills which young people need. Much more importantly, it was also providing a binding together for people in that, in that, that country. But also, the country wanted to know how it was going to present itself on the, on the world stage. And for the South Sudan, one of the most important things was putting together a presentation of Shakespeare's Cymbeline on the globe stage as part of the London Shakespeare Festival in 2012. The first time ever that Shakespeare had been translated into Juba Arabic. The first time ever that country had presented itself on the world stage. The first time ever it had been seen as a parallel equivalent to the other countries who were presenting on that stage, whether that France, Germany, Palestine, Pakistan, etc., etc. So those elements of uh, culture in terms of building the state, building its, re- its presence around the world and building its reputation were critically important to those people I was speaking to back in uh, 2012. But also what was important for, for uh, those, pe- those, those, those people I was speaking to was that that recognition was coming from the UK. It mattered deeply to them that the recognition came from the UK. Of course, not alone, but it was more important than recognition from France or recognition from China or recognition from uh, other African countries. And I think there's an interesting insight into a way in which uh, cultural relations builds opportunity for this country. And the extent to which we, I think, all too often in this country, misunderstand or fail to understand the range of opportunity that there is for us. Why did it matter? Well, it mattered to uh, South Sudan, but why did it matter to the UK? And I think it mattered to the UK because of the ties, the ties of commerce, the ties of culture, the ties of education, the ties of partnership, the development, which leads to a partnership, which leads to trust, which leads to opportunity. And ultimately, we would argue that that uh, that chain of cause and, and, and effect from uh, building contacts, connections, relationships through to uh, real opportunity, uh, which can be very often material, is critically important for us as a nation. And I think there is good evidence that it actually exists. And you can make that exactly the same argument. Uh, I was in this weekend on the phone to my colleague in Kiev, um, and uh, obviously talking with some concern about what was going on in Kiev. But we first went into Kiev, uh, we were the first foreign cultural organisation to start working in Kiev, um, and we have maintained our presence throughout uh, the period since uh, uh, Ukrainian independence, and indeed uh, we reopened our office at 8 o'clock on Monday morning, uh, uh, along with uh, our other colleagues. But again, for Ukraine, that connection, particularly for Western Ukraine, that connection to the rest of the world, particularly Europe, is of critical importance. Now, the British Council as an organisation exists to tell UK's story via the most attractive assets that we as a country have. And it's often something that we get quite embarrassed about. We don't often find much embarrassment in France or in Germany or in the United States about telling your national story. You often find quite a lot of embarrassment in this country about telling that story. Indeed, uh, it was back in 1939, August 1939, the Daily Express, uh, Lord Beaverbrook in Daily Express said, what is the best propaganda for us, the roar of British bombers and fighters or the melody of madrigals broadcast by the British Council? 
If we saved the money wasted by the council, we could have three extra squadrons of fighters to join the display. Now, I'm not quite sure how much Lord Breverbrook thought a madrigal cost compared with a Spitfire, uh, or indeed how much money he thought we were spending on madrigals. But it is, I think, a really interesting insight into some of the embarrassment and indeed the lack of certainty we often have as a country in the way we actually present ourselves internationally. And that language, that language which says there is, an, uh, there is a, a dichotomy uh, between uh, the hard power and the cultural power, and the cultural power is effete, and the hard power is manly, that still actually informs an awful lot of the discourse, I, uh, I would argue, in this country. A few months ago, you'll all remember the, some of these headlines that appeared. Um, and this was all in the aftermath of the Syrian vote um, that uh, Britain uh, should not join the United States on military action in, 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 Britain, in, in Syria. We're not a small island that no one listens to, but last week's Syria vote was a step in the, that direction. The weakened West. Are we entering a new age of isolationism? Just one set of a whole series of... Uh, slightly anxious, or indeed more, more than slightly anxious, headlines which appeared right across uh, the press in this country. Um, are we somehow weakened because we aren't prepared to engage in uh, a much larger uh, com- uh, military involvement? That muscularity, which uh, people often see as, as critically important, but also the relationship between ourselves and the United States. Um, uh, and followed up very, very rapidly by uh, the similar sort of headlines when John Kerry had the temerity to say that France was the oldest ally of the United States and the sheer level of anxiety that that provoked. I think that weakness that we have in, in this country in looking at ourselves within a very narrow fr- uh, lens is a real problem for us. And it goes back almost to uh, Britain's place in the world uh, under, and... Uh, Dean Acheson's comments on Britain having lost an empire but not yet found a role. And if it is still true that we're searching for a role, we often have real problems ourselves. Uh, are we, do we live in the UK or Britain? Are we British or are we English, uh, Scottish, Welsh or Northern Irish? Are we Pakistani, British, Bangladeshi, Welsh or uh, Afro-Caribbean Londoners? Are we all of those things or none of those things? And that sense of confusion which often informs our dialogue is very often we see as something which the others look at us. But when you're overseas, if you're in China, we come from Ingwar, England. Um, uh, the, the, all those complexities which we often want to externalise are, are really irrelevant as far as the other is concerned. It's also, in some senses, so much easier to be French when you have a national offer which is liberté, égalité, fraternité or the American's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What we are is often quite a difficult thing to actually expand on. But it's also one of the things that makes this country, in many ways, the most attractive because of that, that complexity. We would argue that in the, thinking about the, 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 the whole spread of international engagement and international uh, authority. There is a wide spectrum which runs all the way through from aid and development right the way through to military action. Uh, passing as it goes along through uh, uh, relationship building, cultural diplomacy, more traditional diplomacy, messaging, influencing. 
the formula that I use is giving, helping, influencing, telling, and ordering. And there are very, very few uh, countries in the world who are able to operate across that entire spectrum. We in this country have a remarkable range of position across that spectrum. Our place in the world is much more than simply the political or the military. Yes, we are members of probably a uniquely complex set of international organisations. P5, the G8, the G20, the Commonwealth, the EU, NATO. We also have an extraordinarily powerful range of institutions which have influence around the world, whether those are our great universities, not least this one. Uh, there are only, just side, there are only, I think, two universities which have a Chinese name, which is not simply a transliteration of the, uh, the, the foreign name, and those are Oxford and Cambridge. Um, our language. The power of our language is extraordinary. There are 1.6 billion people in the world learning English at the moment. The uh, total population learning English uh, in, fr in, in, the, in China exceeds the total population of this country and Australia and the United States put together. Um, everywhere I go, the first demand made of me and my organisation is access to English. Not, sadly, because people want to read Shakespeare. The world might be better if they did. But because... English is a commodity language. It is a language of opportunity and aspiration. And meeting people's opportunities and aspirations is a critical, I would argue, critical element of that wider soft power agenda that we're talking about. But also our creativity. And that creativity isn't simply the National Theatre or the Royal Shakespeare Company or the Opera House, but it is the fact that eight out of the 11 Formula One teams are based in, uh, within a few miles, actually, of this place. The fact that 90% of the world's films are finished within one square mile of central London. The fact that virtually all computer-generated graphics for film is all generated within southern uh, England. Um, that creativity, that uh, uh, extraordinary explosion and, of ne and network of creativity is hugely attractive for people right around the world. And it's reflected often in the fact that our games industry is at the forefront of, of the world's uh, 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 IT gaming. That our museums are hugely uh, uh, attractive. Of the world's five great museums, three of them, uh, with, which attract the largest numbers of people, three of them are in London. Uh, that our theatre, uh, one of the biggest draws of people for tourism into this country, is theatre. And that London theatre attracts more people from the United States than any other single attraction. But also some of those things we often don't think about. Sport. One of my favourite statistics is that there are 86 million members of the Chinese Communist Party. Manchester United claims 107 million uh, Chinese followers of uh, Manchester United football uh, uh, in, in China. Now, does that mean that Manchester United is more powerful than the Chinese Communist Party? Probably not. But... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure how many in Chelsea, but I don't think it's 107 million. Uh, but it is... If you think about it, the visceral attraction of Manchester United football might have to 107 million people in China is something which it is worth uh, valuing and thinking about uh, when we think about the influence that we have. I would argue that the only countries that can match the UK in the entire spread 
of uh, international uh, influence from uh, the political power, from military power right the way through cultural power to the aid, is in fact the United States and uh, France. Germany, hugely influential country in all sorts of ways, but not across that entire spectrum. China, absolutely a country with huge ambitions to operate across that entire spectrum, but not doing so at the moment. India, ambition, but very little actually delivery on the ground. Russia, absolutely the ambition, and probably the one that uh, operates most fully. But is is Russia the attraction which uh, the United States, France or the UK might be? No, I don't think so. So it is, I think, a really interesting place that we occupy on that spectrum. I think the other critical point about the spectrum is, uh, going back to Lord Beaverbrook, it isn't about madrigals or uh, spitfires. It's not about F-35s or the English language. It is both, um, if you really want to operate effectively across that. I think... The other point I would want to make is that uh, these different forms of engagement actually reinforce each other. And one of the best examples of that was the UK's involvement in Sierra Leone a few years ago. Some of you will no doubt remember or uh, will know of the uh, uh, military intervention uh, which uh, brought an end to a really very, very bloody and revolting uh, civil war in Sierra Leone where people would be mutilated on a day-to-day basis. The military intervention was absolutely vital to create the space which allows the peace to be found. But the military intervention did not and could not create the the, the peace in itself. What was vitally important to follow up that military intervention was first of all development aid. How were people actually going to build and grow Uh, 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 an economically viable future for themselves. But also, very important for that, was the development of the education system. So the people began to see opportunity for themselves, their families and their society. But also critically important within that was the development of institutions, the refounding of fundamental institutions of a plural society, which many, many of the people in that part of the world, in, in Sierra Leone, were looking for. And then opportunity for expression in all sorts of different ways. And that language, a critically important part of that. So the military, vitally important intervention. But the doctrine, which uh, General Mike Jackson actually uh, uh, articulated, uh, was a very simple one. The military there were there with windows down and waving. It was about creating a space which saw the military as human beings and people who could be trusted, but who could hold the space for the other interventions to come along. I first visited Iraq in uh, 2003, and it was immediately obvious, even in 2003, the huge problem that we actually were were building there, because the one thing we never, ever did effectively in Iraq, I would argue, is bring behind the... into the space that the military were holding the interventions which were actually going to allow us to win the peace. I think I spoke a few moments ago around about those those aspects of greatest attraction. 
And if you look at the Joe Nye um, uh, definition of soft power, soft power, the ability to get you what, 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 you want, what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payment, and it arises from the attractiveness of a country's culture, political ideals, and policies. And I think it's interesting to ask the question, what are the cultural uh, uh, soft power attractions of this country? I mentioned earlier on English. Um, this actually comes from a, uh, one of my favourite posters in, in, in India. I particularly like the spelling of knowledge. Um, but uh, English language and access to English language, hugely important. Also access to education. And education is right the way through. It is from, uh, from right the way from, from kindergarten through the basic education system, through vocational and into higher education. Right across the world, the uh, attraction that this country has, driven in part, or not in large part, by the uh, uh, reputation of our greatest universities, um, continues to be a huge draw of people uh, to, towards the UK. And then our creativity. But also, I think a vitally important element of that is the way in which we express our way of life. And culture, I think it's very, very important that we don't see simply in the high, in the high, in the sense of high culture. And it's again some of those things which we find it much more difficult than other countries do to actually articulate what we mean by our way of life. Uh, is it the rule of law? Is it political plurality? Is it the extent to which we have institutions of civil society? What do those institutions of civil society look like? How many countries around the world restrict the action of NGOs, particularly homegrown NGOs, because of the influence they have in the way in which politics actually uh, uh, is changed as a result of them? And certainly one of our experiences uh, in many parts of the world, not least in North Africa, is that the attraction that this country has is often articulated through education and language. But actually what people are looking for is how do we live in a different way. We asked a whole range of people in the immediate aftermath of the Arab Spring, which is a phrase, it's again, it's a wonderfully culturally bound phrase. No Arab talks about the Arab Spring. Um, uh, it's an entirely Western uh, newspaper uh, uh, construct. But in the immediate aftermath of those revolutions, we actually asked a whole range of young people in, in, uh, in North Africa, particularly in Egypt, in Libya, in Tunisia, what it was that they were looking for. And their answers were very, very clear. First of all, we want opportunity for ourselves and for our families. In order to do that, we want education and we want uh, language because language gives us international access and international uh, engagement. But above all, we want to have a voice in the future of our society. And the younger you were, and if you were female rather than male, the more likely you were to answer that because the people who felt they had made those revolutions felt disinterested disempowered from the future which was being created in those countries. And so um, uh, the way in which we actually live, I think, is critically important. I think the other aspect of the, uh, the world as, as, it, as it's developing, um, I draw very much on, on Robin Niblett, the director of Chatham House. Uh, when he was writing Influencing Tomorrow, a book about the challenges facing UK foreign policy, uh, which he, he wrote with Chatham House in, in, just before the last election. The one distinguishing feature he identified of the 21st century was the inability of countries to address international challenges or exert true international leadership on their own. No country, however powerful, is able to operate without the, that community. 
And so how you build that community and how you actually engage with other, with, with other countries and the authority that you actually have with individuals and ordinary people is a critically important part of how countries themselves will engage with each other. We talk about uh, cultural influence and, and soft power very much from a Western perspective. But one of the areas that we are probably most uncomfortable about engaging on is the whole area of religion and faith. The days when we used to send uh, 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 missionaries abroad with a gun in one hand and a Bible in the other are long gone. But we are, I think one of the things that we, again, one of the discomforts we often have is the, the power of faith in uh, engaging with people. And you only have to think about the uh, influence that Saudi Arabia has because of its uh, 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 status as being the keeper of the two holy shrines of, of, of Islam. is, I think, extraordinary, uh, the power that it actually has uh, in projecting itself as a world power. Helped, of course, by the fact that it's got a lot of money. But actually, its influence, I think we often misunderstand the way in which Saudi Arabia engages with the rest of the world because we actually look at it from purely a financial uh, perspective rather than actually this wider influence perspective. Um, and I think if we are serious about understanding soft power, we need to be prepared to open our eyes to the fact that other people's definition of the term is not always going to be the same as ours. And some of the influences that we are least likely to want to engage with are going to be some of the most powerful influences that others will use. You might well argue, indeed, that Al-Qaeda is one of the most powerful soft power organisations in the world. It doesn't gain its authority through violence alone, though violence, of course, is a critical part of its ideology. But actually, what it, it's interesting to ask the question, what does Al-Qaeda offer to its adherents? Um, and it is about... Well, I will leave you, perhaps we'll come back and, and, and answer that question as part of the conversation, the discussion after that. Um, one of the questions which often I pose myself and I find quite interesting is why Israel does not utilise its soft power in a much fuller and more value-driven way than, than it does. In many ways, Israel is a hugely attractive country for, uh, for people it is uh, wealthy, it is well run, it has extraordinary education, scientific um, uh, uh, cultural dimensions and yet in no way does it seek to engage the rest of the world or only in the most minor way does it seek to engage the rest of the world through its cultural power. Would Israel have a different position in the world if it actually used its cultural and its soft power as well as its military power? Again, I think an interesting question to actually ask ourselves. In the past, it all seemed to be so much more straightforward. Uh, one of the great and most powerful moments of soft power, which we often, I don't think, really understand fully effectively yet, is, of course, the, the, the Cold War. The extent to which the Cold War was, a, in, in many ways, actually a cultural war rather than uh, a, a military war. This picture is uh, of uh, the American National Exhibition in Moscow in 1959 um, when uh, Khrushchev and Nixon uh, debated the merits of Soviet and American kitchens and whether or not they were in the work reach of the working man. Cupboards and aluminium saucepans swiftly became a cipher for national ideologies. Don't be afraid of ideas, Mr. Nixon exhorted Mr. Khrushchev. Um, and that 
debate between those two opposing ideological, those two opposing ideological blocks, was in many ways an, a, a cultural debate. It's not just about kitchens, but also uh, a proxy war of jazz, abstract expressionism, as well as space disposal units, um, uh, which informed so much of that, uh, that period. And the end of the Cold War was in many ways seen as a victory of the mass culture of the West over the high culture of the Soviet Union. And we, as victors, if you like, of that, saw it as an opportunity to engage fully with societies which hitherto have been difficult to reach. But also, um, and this is a, a quote from Nick Cull, the University of Southern California Center on Public Diplomacy, who argues that the USIA's ideologically driven masters believe that increasing, increased US public diplomacy would be a short-term phase in Eastern Europe's march to capitalism, rather than the long-term project to promote mutual understanding. As a result, President Carter abolished USIA in 1999, uh, merging it into the State Department. In my view, one of the most disastrous decisions in, uh, 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 that uh, any president has actually made. Because it was based upon the idea that that ideological battle had actually been won. One of the most interesting things, I think, from our national story was the determination that Margaret Thatcher had in 1989 to, to, to build a strong and effective engagement with the peoples of Eastern Europe as the, as the, the Iron Curtain came down, as the Berlin Wall came down. The know-how fund, I think, is a really interesting example, which has very, very little, been very rarely explored in how this country sought to engage. And that wasn't simply through the development of uh, uh, straight uh, uh, developmental type engagements, but it was a very specifically aimed at engaging young people and bringing a, a connection between young people in this country and those countries. Um, one of the things that Margaret Thatcher, and I remember this personally very well indeed, was absolutely determined about was that German would not become the lingua franca. It's a wonderful phrase, lingua franca, when you talk about languages. Uh, would not become the lingua franca of East Eastern Europe, as it had been before 1939 or 1945. But that actually English was going to be the language which would, young people in Eastern Europe would use for international communication. And the amount of money which was pumped into the establishment of English language teaching uh, uh, support right across Eastern Europe was absolutely massive and a un completely untold story, and incidentally, hugely successful. Now, whether that was because English was more, a much more obvious language to learn, I'm not sure at the time, in 1989, 1990, it was seen in that way. And it was a real uh, ideological uh, challenge which was picked up and driven by the Prime Minister herself at that time. What are other people doing in this space? Well... We talked a little bit about uh, uh, the, 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 the Saudis. Um, but also, if you think about Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera founded in 1996 with the slogan, The Opinion and the Other Opinion, a hugely influential uh, uh, player, and the one which actually opened for Arab countries the idea that they actually also had a voice in this space. Um, uh, Interestingly for me, the first time any Arab station showed Israeli-speaking Hebrew 
was in Al Jazeera in, uh, in 1999, I believe it was. But other countries are engaged in a really substantial and significant way in trying to develop this, this area of work. China is perhaps the most uh, deeply uh, involved in what uh, they call Ranshali, or soft power. 300 plus Confucius Institutes have been founded uh, in the last 12 years. Uh, British Council has 110 uh, cultural institutes developed over 80 years. Uh, China is practicing soft power in a really interesting way across uh, Africa. It's purchased, for example, the Sun Media Group in South Africa in order to ensure that the criticism of China, which was being articulated through the media groups, was challenged in a really uh, substantial and significant way, I think is of real interest uh, to us. The fact that China now provides 12,000 scholarships to young Africans to go and study in China every year. This country, um, I haven't added them all up, I would be amazed if the total number of scholarships for sub-Saharan Africa exceeded 100. And those more ambitious and those noisier neighbours coming into the space need, mean that we ourselves need to become much, much smarter. In a world in which any individual with a mobile phone um, with a camera on it becomes a television reporter, uh, everybody with a Twitter account becomes a, a journalist, um, the ability to engage in the digital space is going to become ever more important for us. One of the things that we as an organisation do is we now provide free English language material to education ministries across the world to load onto their laptops. Every, uh, every emerging country has got some sort of laptop or uh, uh, tablet program for young primary students. So, give them materials which are going to uh, help them learn English. Not learn it as in the, not, not learn to love the UK, but learn to use the language in a way which is going to be of use to them. Sport continues to be an ever more, an ever growing, and more important way in which we actually engage around the world. Um, the obvious and power of uh, uh, the Olympic Games as a soft power deliverer, I think, is critically important. But within all of this, what is it that makes soft power? What is, what is the nature of soft power? What makes it truly effective? I think there are six key elements to soft power, which our experience indicates are, are critical if you're going to be truly effective. First of all, and for us most importantly, it is arm's length from government. Governments right around the world are distrusted. Government agencies have limited trust. If you present yourself as a cultural agency simply delivering the, 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 the authority of uh, a, uh, your home government you are not going to be able to be a truly effective cultural relations organisation. I've had this conversation with Chinese partners. Um, I believe that one of the things that actually undermines Chinese soft power more than anything else is the link between the party, the government, and the Chinese soft power institutions. Whether that is because people don't distrust it, or right the way through to the, the call that made in the United States two years ago that Confucius Institute should be um, uh, uh, banned in the United States because they were simply the front, pe front the, the mouthpiece for uh, the Chinese Communist Party. So arm's length, I believe, is critically important. 
I think the second thing which is critically important is mutuality. We use the term, and we were talking a little bit earlier about this, this, the difficulty of the lexicon around this, we talk about the term cultural relations rather than cultural soft power or, or cultural diplomacy. Because soft power, cultural diplomacy, public diplomacy, in my view, are all about one-way push. A soft power relationship is first and foremost about a relationship. If you're not prepared to listen to the person you're talking to, it's going to be a very, very boring conversation indeed. If you're not clear about where you're coming from in, May, in that conversation, I think you're going to leave yourself distrusted. So the mutuality, the fact that you are listening as well as talking, the fact that, however, that you're clear about where you come from and you're the, 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 the principles which underpin the conversation you're seeking to have is equally important. I think the third thing is it has to be long-term. Treasuries and ministries of finance right around the world want to know that this delivers, and they want to know it delivers in the next 18 months, please, um, or certainly before the next election. But actually, a relationship is a long-term slow burn, not a short-term quick fix. And one of the greatest difficulties every soft power organisation has is being able to convince people of the, the, the long-term value. We all know it instinctively. We all know that if you have studied somewhere, you have an instinctively greater affection for that place and the people that you know and met. But being able to demonstrate it is much more difficult. I think the third, sorry, the fourth area is that we have to be able to be much more uh, use, much more capable of using both traditional and new network digital means of engagement if we're going to be truly effective. And finally, and, 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 and fifthly, we have to be, have be able to use the full range, full scale of uh, soft power actors. These are not simply governmental or government funded, but actually all the rest of those uh, uh, actors who are available within a country. The great problem governments have is they like to actually uh, fire the gun or let loose the arrow. Um, the truth of the matter is, and this is the final condition I would say, all government can do is create the conditions which allow other people to be effective. And that is one of the most frustrating things for any government. They cannot actually either, uh, they can will the, the means, they cannot will the ends. They cannot actually define the outcomes that they're looking for. They have to actually... Uh, again, to overextend the military metaphor, uh, soft power is a fire-and-forget missile. It's not something that you can actually direct. And there's a deep frustration for government in that. But also, in creating those conditions, um, it has to allow other people to operate in whatever way they actually want. One of the greatest difficulties we have in this country, I'd argue at the moment, about creating the, 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 creating the conditions is government puts in place a visa regime which uh, uh, constantly counters every other piece of rhetoric which we actually might use. So the Prime Minister goes to India, and I was with him, and stands up on a stage and says, Britain is open to you. And yet the next day, um, the newspapers have, uh, have the story which says 30% of Indian applicants for British visas were turned down last month. Which one are people going to believe? So government has to create the conditions which enable this to be effective. Is it effective? Does it work? I think there's a real space for a lot more effective academic discussion and, engage, and, and, and research in this area. We as an organisation have done a certain amount of research. We have a publication called Trust Matters which asks two questions. If you trust a country, 
are you more likely to want to engage with that country? And we ask the question, if you trust, how much do you trust the UK? And if you do trust the UK, how much are you, more are you willing to do business, to study, to visit, to engage with the, with the UK? And the, fasc- the, 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 the uh, numbers are absolutely fascinating. In India, those who trust us um, uh, go from... Those, sorry, those who do not trust us are 40% likely to want to do business with us. Those who do trust us are 64% likely. In Poland, the difference is between 29% and 57%. In China, the difference is between 30% and 49%. So these are substantial and significant shifts in willingness of people to actually engage. We also ask the question, uh, what makes you trust us more? And we ask the question of two things. Do you trust the British government? And do you trust the UK, the people of the UK? Not surprising there was a gap between the two. Um, and, but aren't we then ask the question, if you've had a cultural relationship, a cultural engagement with the UK, you've learned the language, you've studied here, or you've studied with people, you've uh, had a cultural uh, uh, exchange of some kind with this country, are you more likely to trust or not? And again, the figures were startling. In India, uh, 59% of people who had a cultural engagement trusted the UK, both the government and the, pe- and, and the UK people, if you hadn't, for only 40% did. In Poland, it was 47% against 37%. In China, 58% of people, as opposed to below 40%, were prepared to trust the UK if they'd had that sort of exchange. And often, it's again, it's in, in some senses, it's rather simplistic. If you know someone, you're more likely to trust them than if you don't know them. And we all recognise that in our everyday life. So, I will stop at this point because I think it would be interesting to have the conversation. But just to finish off, I think we've got to stop thinking in this country about our our international influence as either ors, as either military or soft power, as either culture or um, uh, some form of intervention, and recognise there's an entire spectrum that we work on. Great powers have to be able to operate across that entire international spectrum. And Beaverbrook was wrong, as he was in so many other things, I might add. These are not either-ors, these are not spitfires or madrigals, but they're both ands. And a nation's, and the, the, our ability to sustain the UK's influence on a global basis in a turbulent, noisy and challenging environment is vitally dependent upon our ability to exercise that full range of influence as a country. Thank you. Thank you.